everyone, and welcome to our podcast series on legal issues in the post-COVID world. My name is Gil Porter, a partner at Haynes & Boone, and host of our ongoing series of podcasts covering the post-COVID legal landscape. Today is October 22. We're not quite at Halloween, so we're not going to try to scare you today. Instead, we're returning to a topic we discussed earlier in the year, the Paycheck Protection Program. It's been an enormously popular program with its own attendant complications. And now that time has passed, we find ourselves looking at the program from a different perspective. In this case, how it affects participating companies in the M&A world. We're joined today by my partner, Dan Malone. Dan is based in our Denver office, handles M&A and other corporate transactions across the food and beverage, consumer products, financial services, technology, automotive, and healthcare industries. As always, our podcast discussion will be guided by our head of media relations, Nathan Koppel. And I'll turn this over to Nathan in a moment, but first, our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. Moreover, by their very nature, the topics we discuss in these podcasts will be fast-moving and subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. Nathan, I'm turning it over to you. Gil, many thanks. And Dan, welcome aboard. Thanks. Great to be here, Nathan. So I'm going to start with a, a basic question to kick things off. And that is, if a target of an acquisition has obtained a PPP loan, why would that necessarily impact the scope of the M&A transaction? I think there are two important impacts that, that buyers and sellers must consider at the outset of any transaction where a target entity is taken on government relief. The first is timing on the overall process, and the second is how it's structured. As for timing, the application, review, forgiveness process, getting rid of or, or forgiving that, that debt can take a substantial amount of time, up to 150 days for bank and small business administration review. This has significant impacts on transactions that usually are rooted in speed and certainty to close as, as key drivers. The second is structure. Depending on what, if any, relief a buyer has taken, there may be conflicts that jeopardize not just the buyer's, but also the seller's relief that it's chosen to take as well under the CARES Act. And just for context, 150 days in, in M&A context is quite a lot of time, I, I assume. That, that can almost be considered an eternity, Nathan. I mean, typically, the start to finish timeline on a lot of transactions in the lower middle market are anywhere from 30 to 60 days. So adding or compensating for an additional review and forgiveness process that comes with these PPP loans can almost double or sometimes triple the, the expected timeline. So how often are you encountering PPP loans in, in, the, in, in M&A matters, especially among the middle market deals that you typically handle? We're seeing them more and more often, especially among the lower middle market targets, right? These are a small business administration relief program under the CARES Act. So it, it should not apply to some of the larger middle market deals, but it has through through nuances within, within the regulations. But we're seeing it now more than we had, we did in May, more than we did in June, more than we did in July. And it's a fundamental question we look at when 
being exposed to a target through diligence and, and taking steps to to acquire that that entity. And do, well, does it come up uh, both with sellers having uh, accepted PPP loans and and uh, and targets, or is it typically on the the, the, the buy side or the pur- sell side? Yeah, for purposes of the discussion, we we should focus on what the seller or the target has done. But as we'll, we'll talk about later, from a compliance perspective, there is an intersection between any relief under the CARES Act that a buyer has elected to take and what a potential target has elected to take. Certain relief options play nicely together and are allowed. Certain other options will defeat the purpose of both relief packages and potentially invalidate both a seller and a buyer's relief uh, options. I want to turn now to ask you about due diligence and what are a few of the key checklist items that a, that a buyer needs to review before moving ahead with a deal if there's a PPP loan outstanding? So as you can appreciate, diligence is so important in our transactions. You know, while the parties rely on definitive documentation to allocate unknown risks, diligence flushes out these issues of valuation prior to entering definitive transactions and to allow the parties to adequately discuss them and value them prior to signing legal documents. In the wake of the CARES Act, we've created a separate due diligence work stream for any target that has taken on government relief under the CARES Act, whether that's a PPP loan, employee credits, or whatever. What we do is we attempt to put ourselves in the shoes of the SBA auditor and reverse engineer everything from the initial eligibility and the application to the business's use of proceeds and compliance under the program, all the way to the certifications and applications it made for forgiveness. The biggest misconception we're seeing in the marketplace is that parties are just getting too comfortable with the initial approval and final forgiveness, thinking that there's no further risk. If you think about it and take it out of this context, you have a borrower that goes to a bank, gets underwritten, receives the proceeds, then applies for forgiveness, goes through that process and actually gets forgiveness, what other risk are we trying to compensate for? Well, in reality, there's quite a bit of risk that we're trying to compensate for. Most notably is the SBA's six-year audit right. If you think about it, the SBA gave out a number of these loans, quite a few, and now they're starting to come due for forgiveness. It, it becomes a matter of resources. The SBA just doesn't have the resources to get through a full and wholesome audit cycle on all of these forgiveness applications. As such, the statute is built in a six-year audit tail that the SBA can come back after the fact and question and sometimes impose liability on a business for its failure to comply or failure to use the funds properly under the act. And as you can imagine, that creates certain issues for a buyer that has then acquired either the assets or the equity of those targets. Yeah, six years seems like a pretty big legacy liability to undertake, I would think. It is. I mean, it's similar to some of the statutory liabilities for taxes. But again, it is a red herring that we see that businesses say, look, the loan's been forgiven. It's the end of the story. 
And that's just not accurate. And we think it's it's something that's going to play out over the years. And it's something that buyers and sellers need to adequately value in the diligence process, but as we'll talk about in a minute, in the documentation process to protect and, and adequately allocate the risk as to non-compliance between buyers and sellers. Yeah, and I do want to ask you about how you deal with this in the documentation. But first, I'm going to I'm going to paraphrase Shakespeare here and ask you to pay or to repay or not to repay. Should, is it advisable to have the target here repay the loan, or or would you better to keep it outstanding post closing? In a perfect world, if you're eligible for forgiveness, and we think 100% of forgiveness, right? Because it's not an all or nothing calculation, right? We're seeing certain applications be awarded 60%, 70%, all the way up to 100% forgiveness. But I think there's no business reason we're seeing that if you feel that you're at 100% and you're ready to make that application for forgiveness, to wait for that. The issues we see are when it's premature for that or when a business hasn't fully used those funds, what do you do? Do you go and make an application for a a part of those of the overall proceeds or do you rely on the contract and the post-closing period after a significant transaction to go after the, the forgiveness options under the CARES Act? And I guess given some of the timing issues, it would just be difficult to, to wait for that process to play out, I would think, in many instances before before you move ahead with the transaction. That's right. So much of middle market M&A relies on speed and certainty to close. Now, if we're able to work with a legacy client that is thinking about a strategic transaction in the future, and they've taken on certain relief packages under the CARES Act, then we'll get into that proactive discussion with the client to say, now is the right time to set the table for that strategic transaction. As I mentioned a minute ago, given the six-year look back, it doesn't mean that you're immune to the risk as a buyer, but it does simplify the process between signing and closing of acquiring a business that has a loan forgiven, as opposed to being in the mix of using the proceeds or getting the proceeds forgiven. So let me turn now to the, the documentation and curious how these uh, PPP loans will impact M&A gr- agreements such as pre and post closing covenants and indemnifications. And a related question here, what steps can and should a buyer take to protect themselves against some of the contingencies that you've talked about? It all comes back to the contract, right? We, we do diligence to identify these risks. We value those risks to help clients make educated decisions on the risk. But at the end of the day, what survives the business transaction is the contract. And so parties that are entering into these transactions need to think about three important buckets. The first is reps and warranties. The second is covenants. And the third is indemnification. First, reps and warranties, these are vital, right? They'll flush out the compliance issues and questions of forgiveness. So the items that we're looking for in diligence, we're asking the target business to stand behind, that you have applied, that you have complied, and you have asked for forgiveness all within the confines of the law. These are statements that we expect them to to make and and to ultimately hold true. The second is covenants. Covenants are promises to do something in the future, whether that's between signing and closing during the executory period 
or whether it's post-closing. And we're finding these to be even more important because they're delineating who does what, right? The use of proceeds. What if a business that has signed a definitive acquisition agreement to be acquired still has proceeds to use? What can or can't that business do with those proceeds? What if the application for forgiveness process happens between signing and closing? We're seeing that a lot now prior to some recent guidance. Parties have been moving forward with transactions with this unknown out there, and they're using covenants between signing and closing. So you've signed a definitive agreement to acquire a business, but you haven't yet closed, using the, the covenants to allocate who should do what, who should make certifications to the SBA on behalf of the forgiveness process. And then almost most importantly, what if there is an, an audit? either prior to the closing or after the closing? Who gets to control the audit? Who gets a say? I'll I'll note on the covenants, one other item that we're tracking almost daily is new relief. What happens if parties sign a definitive agreement, let's say today, October 22nd, and next week, Congress institutes a new relief package, maybe an expansion of the the PPP, maybe a whole new act altogether, can a buyer or a seller mandate that the other do or do not take advantage of those? Those are important things that as a buyer, you may have a direct risk or a direct reason that you don't want a target to do that. And as a seller, during the executory period, before you legally close on your transaction, you may want to or worse, need to take advantage of those funds. So these are important parts of the documentation that, that again, are evolving on a daily basis. The last piece is indemnification, right? This is the all-important allocation of risk if there's an issue. If the reps and warranties are not true, if the covenants are breached, who is responsible for what financially? And with a six-year audit right post-forgiveness, buyers really should be protected from this. And we're seeing indemnification go from breaches of reps all the way to a specific indemnification, line item indemnification for these issues. As a buyer, you want this broad, but as a seller, it's important to stand behind only things you as the seller can control. If the buyer was the result of the liability, you want to make sure that is narrowly tailored. So again, we're finding that these are moving, the market is moving into these specific indemnities, but there's a tension between buyers and sellers as to what that looks like. One other note that I will also note from a practice perspective, the marketplace and middle market has gotten comfortable over the last decade with moving unknown business risks to rep and warranty insurance. And what we're finding here is that there's really not much of an appetite from rep and warranty insurers to insure these risks around the PPP and CARES Act relief programs. It's not to say that there's not issuers out there that'll take on this risk, but it's not a safe assumption for parties entering into these transactions to assume, like most unknown business risks in an M&A transaction, that they'll go to insurance. We're we're not seeing that, and we're going back to the original buyer-seller indemnity um, that's controlling the day on this issue. So I I guess the onus then is really on the parties and their lawyers to to allocate the risk appropriately. Exactly. And again, the misconception when this started to come up in the marketplace 
was that getting back to my point on diligence, you've got a borrower that had applied for the loan, was underwritten and approved by a bank, funded by the SBA, and then further applied for forgiveness, received questions or an audit or or what have you, and then got full approval, how can there be liability? And with the statutory look back, it's, it's, it's imperative that parties discuss who's going to take on what liability should there be issues. Well, as, as lawyers like you are in the trenches working out these covenants and indemnifications, I'm just curious how much of the law around this is settled? Uh, I mean, could the six-year lookout be changed at some point in the future and, and, and a four-year statute of limitations applied or other kind of key changes uh, happen in the future? You know, I almost want to say, Nathan, I haven't looked in the last 20 minutes, so I can't give you the most current landscape on the issue. Um, it's one of those things that that is changing daily, right? If you go back and think about the initial package, it was written over a long weekend, right? The, the country needed it, businesses needed this relief, and it was implemented very quickly. And with that came access to funds that in theory were forgivable at some point. And you had an onslaught of people taking this this relief on as they likely should have. That said, now the dust is beginning to settle and the M&A activity is picking back up. And businesses and M&A, the the appetite for M&A is outpacing the guidance that is being issued by the SBA. And so that's left practitioners like myself on the front lines to try to stay, you have to stay on the cutting edge to figure out what the SBA is giving in guidance. And those are coming through FAQs that add important guidance to these loans. But absent that, you have to work with clients to establish creative ways that minimize risk, but don't stop M&A activity, right? The, the goal is to continue seeking out these transactions and continue to execute where you can. Um, I don't think the SBA's intent is to stop or, or somehow curtail M&A activity, but without the guidance, practitioners who are doing this all the, all the time, like myself, are left scratching our heads at times with, with what parties should or should not be doing under the laws that have been codified. And I guess you'll have to continue to make this up as you go along, because as you say, we could have additional relief packages in the future. Yes. We should almost move this to a weekly update because it it really is. And I, I say that half in jest because the FAQs come out and practitioners are looking back both forward looking to see what we can do with clients that have not signed transactions yet or have not undergone these these processes, but also backward looking to figure out what has been done and what actions we've taken to date and how do they fit into the guidance. Sometimes helping, sometimes requiring parties to go back and change what has been done. Well, Dan, thank you so much. Fascinating developments, which were probably not envisioned, as you say, in the long weekend in which the PPP program was was uh, en- enacted or put into place. So thank you very much for this. Any other issues or, or topics here you want to hit on? I think it's important to just to just to recap that if nothing else, if you're looking at a target or if you're thinking about an, a strategic exit or transaction in the lower middle market and there's any type of CARES Act relief, 
in both the buyer or the seller, it's important to reach out to somebody who's dealing with this every day because that has changed how we've historically done deals. And it's not a material change to the overall transaction, but for timing, for deal certainty, and for the allocation of risk, there are important changes that, that we're working on on a daily basis that are really benefits to buyers and sellers in the middle market. Dan, really appreciate this overview. Uh, with that, Gil, I'm going to turn it back to you. Wonderful. Thank you, Dan and Nathan. And thank you to our listeners for joining our COVID podcast series. More details on the topics covered in today's podcast are available in a webinar presented this past Tuesday by Dan, accompanied by our colleagues Sakina Foster and Don Sheeman, and available for replay on our website. This is a one-hour presentation, and there are some very useful written materials as well. I also want to take a quick moment to remind you of two of our other initiatives that have been spawned from our COVID programs. First, we have a China Updates page available on our website, tracking developments in U.S. and China relations. And we have a new podcast, the HB Media Minute, focusing on legal developments and trends impacting the media and entertainment industry, intellectual property, and open government First Amendment law. You can find all of these at our website, along with hundreds of other useful materials. That's hanesboon.com, H-A-Y-N-E-S-B-O-O-N-E. Our podcast series has moved to a monthly format, so please stay tuned and tuned in, and let us know if you have any suggestions for further podcast topics. Until next time, take care all. Please remember to vote, and have a great and safe Halloween.